Hi there. Welcome to A Creative Affair. And today we're joined with Michael O'Neill. And today we're going to be talking about teaching creativity and all go- things that go with that. And uh, uh, Michael, we met on the uh, internet uh, yeah. ac- across the lands over um, Instagram, I think it was, mm-hmm. uh, because of his uh, gorgeous photographs of beautiful models and, and uh, people in forests taken with uh, uh, full-spectrum uh, infrared cameras. And uh, uh, we've actually um, had a-, a lovely long friendship over the last few years, and we've, we've put him in the first issue, or not the f- one of the issues of Lens Journal. It's actually he's in Volume 1, Issue 3, with a, a gorgeous set of his work. Now, Michael uh, is a professor uh, in psychology mm-hmm. and in fine art and in photography and teaches uh, uh, at university and in numerous uh, educational institutions. So we're not going into a huge long introduction, but uh, we've now sit three of us, all educators uh, working in the education field with uh, creativity, uh, and we want to talk today about how do we do it and how it all works. Right. Well. Who wants to start with uh, either a question <laughs> or a comment? Well, I think I'm, I always have an opinion here. <laughs> Michael, why don't you just start by telling us just a little bit like about yourself and how you came to like be where you are. And by the way, the photographs in Lens Journal are really lovely. I just pulled oh, it out. I remember, I remember seeing them, but I just pulled it out. So I really just tell that. us a little tiny bit about yourself, what you do. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of interesting how I ended up doing what I do. I think um, my background is in psychology. So my undergraduate degree is in psychology, but that's um, <clears throat> not really what I teach now. I mean, it's hard to get away from it, I guess. Um, but that's that was my uh, what I studied as, as uh, an undergrad. Um, and it was a funny thing. Where I went to school, I went to a, a school called Wake Forest University. Um, the photography classes were really hard to get into. Um, and the class that I took was a um, in the sociology department. For some strange reason, well, I know what the reason was. My my professor, um, the, who was the head of the program, just loved photography, and he wanted to teach a photography class. So he kind of made up a class that was a sociology class, the only photography class I could get get into before I graduated. And I fell in love with the medium then. So I, I ended up working as a, a, a freelance assistant and a commercial photographer for about ten years um, here in North Carolina, um, which was an interesting market to be in because it was mostly corporate photography. We did a lot of things like NASCAR photography and worked for manufacturers and, and things like that. So it was a lot of really technical work. Um, but I realized pretty quickly I loved teaching. Um, so it was really teaching that pulled me into the creative world. It was um, I. I worked at a photography school in Maine one summer um, and got to meet some really, um, it's called the Maine Photographic Workshops. And um, and the thing that was funny for me about it was that there were some very famous photographers who taught there who were terrible teachers. Um, And then I met some really wonderful teachers who I'd never heard of before. And that was, you know, a real sort of turning point for me that it's like, oh, well, just because someone's good at the thing doesn't mean they know how to teach 
the thing. It, it was it was a very um, Arnold Newman was one of the teachers, and people would come and spend thousands and thousands of dollars to hang out with Arnold Newman for for the weekend. And he was unpleasant, I guess, might be the the best way <laughs> uh, to describe him. Uh, he was very cantankerous and uh, just you know the, the guy who is his teaching assistant. He just kind of beat on him like the the, the whole time, um, not. Physically, but you know, um, emotionally, and uh, it was kind of one of these weird things. It, I've worked with a couple of marquee photographers as an assistant, and um, people whose fame was kind of equivalent to the people, the celebrities they were photographing. And it was really interesting to be in a room like that. You know, the, the person that they would bring in to photograph Jeff Gordon for Sports Illustrated had to be kind of as big a personality as a professional race car driver. Otherwise, you'd get rolled over. So um, it was interesting to see how all that kind of worked. But ultimately, I got more and more creative because I was teaching. And I found that to be a deeply creative act. It was both of you, I know, teach and, 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 and work with students. And it's one of those things that once you get your head into that, you're always kind of teaching. You know, I drive my car and I'm teaching. I take a shower and I'm teaching. Like it's always running through the back of my mind. Like, what's the best way to deliver this information? What's you know, um, how do I reach people a little bit better? And that is, um, I, I, for me, I, that that feels really, really immersive and really, really creative. Thing about uh, about that process that mm-hmm. you. That's just such an interesting observation that you became more creative because you were teaching it. Um, I have a actually a surgeon friend, and I'm trying to remember Mm -hmm. how he phrased it. He said, you really know something like the, the steps are, what is it? Learn one. Gosh, I can't, I I really want to like look it up and remember, but there's like three steps. It's like, Mm -hmm. it's like you have to absorb it. And then, Mm -hmm. but it ends with, there's like three steps. And the third one is teaching it because you've really integrated it when you're teaching it. And so that's it is just by the act of teaching about mm-hmm. the creative process and anything creative we actually become even more creative which i think is really fascinating it's super fascinating because i know that i've learned more about what i've been about whatever i'm you know focusing on just by teaching it or mentoring someone mm-hmm. you know with that and so uh, it's just such an excellent way for us it's almost like it's a little bit selfish a little bit yeah <laughs> no i mean what my my first experience with that was i i was in a study group when i was in that that photography class i was telling you about as an undergrad and i had to teach everybody about the zone system and I knew the zone system so much better after I was done, you know, going through the step-by-step process of figuring out how to how to tell them um, than I ever knew it before or would have known it, you know, without, I mean, part of it was just the pressure of having to explain it, but it linearizes. Ideas have to become so much more concrete um, if you want, because you have to think through the process of, well, not this way, maybe, you know, um, there's a better way of delivering it. So for me, I find that I know this information so much better the second or third time I teach it um, mm. because I've edited my delivery. I, I use a model of called conscious competence and we learn something we first don't understand what it is and we don't really uh, re- register in our mind how hard something is. And when we start learning, we do things where we, we're doing them in our mind and eventually mm-hmm. through practice it becomes second nature and our right. mind our conscious mind disappears and it becomes our, our subconscious and one of the things that 
when we become very good at something, our consciousness disappears uh, at the bit that's in our minds, you know, the words that are going on, and we actually think and feel things. As a teacher, we have to go back to those other steps and help explain things to people. And by pulling people back into uh, explaining it consciously and working out what those steps are, we revisit it and we get better at it. And by working out how we're actually working, we get stronger and stronger at the process ourselves. And I'm exactly the same as, as what you're both talking about there, that the act of teaching makes me a better artist. And uh, I'm addicted to teaching. I'm absolutely addicted to it. I love it. I can't live without it. And I grow from my students. Like they teach me so much. And then the process of me explaining things uh, over and over and that idea of like, how in the hell do I explain this? Or even how do I even figure it out in the first place? As I unravel that, uh, I get better and better. Yeah. I don't know about you guys, but I use that as, an, as a teaching exercise. Hey, here's your subject. You go and teach this to someone else mm -hmm. so you get better at it and yeah. you are forced to break it down into the individual pieces Mm -hmm. to find out what those are. All right, I, I do something yeah, just like that. Queen's University, where I teach, we have these learning communities. We take multiple classes that all interface with the same subject matter. One of the classes that I taught a few semesters ago was really fun. I have a colleague who's a photochemist, and she used to do research and development for Polaroid. And we co-teach a class where we take students through the invention and development of photography as a medium, sort of one chemical process at a time. Oh, wow, so we, I want to come. <laughs> sure. Um, so, we, you know, we, we start with cyanotypes and salt prints and sort of talk about it. And she, she talks so eloquently about how the chemistry works. But, you know, it, it's a really interesting thing to introduce them to Nieps and Daguerre and Talbot and talk a little bit about what science was like back in the, you know, the 1820s. It was, you know, like when you look at the original chemical formulas for the daguerreotype and things like that, or, or Niepce's work, they were using oil of lavender and things like that. I mean, it sounded like a witch's brew, what they were doing, because they didn't understand the periodic table. They didn't know any of that stuff. Um, and so it was really interesting to to take them through that and, and show how like commercial endeavors and um, art, artists were, were kind of pushing each other over over decades and decades to make better photography. Um, and then the artist would push it as far as it could go, and then they had to come out with something better. At the end of that class, they have to basically put together a teaching guide, um, which is like you, you they have to decide up front who their audience is. is. Is it sixth and seventh graders? Is it, you know, whatever, um, college students. And then they have to show them how to build a camera, you know, materials list, how to build, you know, they have to choose, build a pinhole or, you know, a camera using soda straws or something, whatever crazy thing that they find. Um, and it, it has to be, you know, it has to have a science lesson and a, an art lesson built into the, um, the teacher's guide. Um, so yeah, I, I think that's a really, that, that's the best way that I've found in those classes to get them to integrate the information is, is to have to deliver it to, to somebody else. And it's fun to let them choose who it's going to be. You know, is it third graders? Is it, you know, like whatever it is, it has to be um, appropriate for that, that group of people. Mm. That's awesome. Mm. I have a, uh, a student, I suppose, or someone that I mentor that travels from Italy every few years to spend three or four months with me and attend workshops. And um, uh, I mentor their photography. And one of their exercises has, gone, has been to go back 
actually produce a book of what would it be a handbook mm-hmm. in their own language for photography and then set up a, a, a miniature photography school uh, as a way of improving their own skills. So, <laughs> uh, it's, an, it's an amazing exercise. Did they do it, Lem? <laughs> yeah, and their work is just going nuts. And it's really fascinating that she chose me from uh, across the world to come and study with uh, was absolutely a fascinating choice and uh, comes back over, you know, a couple of years apart and does it again and again because they want to push themselves to get uh, out of their comfort zone and, and to go to a new level with their work. Um, and it's, it's a very, very special thing. And It sounds really rewarding. Yeah. It definitely yeah. is. Okay. Wait, wait, pause, pause. It's see one, do one, teach one. Oh, there you go. Oh. <laughs> I just wanted to say that it was going to bother me. And I have seen the, how this happens in my life too, because if I can watch someone do it, but then I need to actually do the thing because some, there's something about mm-hmm. doing it physically, whether, whether it's, you know, I mean, I'm a photographer, if you're a dancer, you have to like watch someone and then try it yourself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not until you actually, when you teach, like, this is what we're talking about. When you teach it, then you're noticing, I think one of the facets of being able to teach it is noticing all of the nuances around it and being mm-hmm. able to distill it down, whatever it is that we're teaching into just what is needed for that person to know, to explain exactly so anyway i think i think that part is really interesting that we have to know all the different parts so that we can really do the teaching well so what were you going to say len i was going to say well how do we teach creativity that's the question so i want to straight ask straight up to you michael how do we how do you teach creativity yeah, it's, I, I've been thinking a lot about the, the question since you asked me to to be a part of the conversation. And, you know, for, for me, um, one of the things I always come back to when, when I'm talking about that is, um, you know, for me, creativity is, is problem solving. Um, uh, when, I mean, if I was going to distill it, that's, that's what it comes down to. Um, in my family, I, you know, my, my partner's an artist, my father's an engineer, my brother's a physician and all of those, um, endeavors I think are, are sort of deeply creative. Um, engineering, I think is, is a really good example, you know, and engineering has to be creative because if it wasn't you, they wouldn't need you. Like it's, it's, you're solving a problem that hasn't been solved before in that particular way. If it had, then they don't need an engineer. It's, it's, it's kind of a really sort of fundamental part of that, of that business. And, you know, um, that, so for me, that, that's sort of where it all starts. When I, when I, run into students who say, well, I'm just not that creative. I'm like, that's bullshit. Um, I, I don't think that that's true at all. You probably have in your life already, you know, solved problems that um, you didn't think you could, uh, that you couldn't see the end of when you when you got started. I mean, I, I think all of that is really fundamental to um, being creative. The second part of it for me is you have to have an interesting problem to solve. That really comes down to being curious. Um, if you are, um, not a curious person, um, then you're not going to have a whole lot of gas in the tank when, when the time comes to like 
solve these these sort of creative problems. Um, and so for me, the, the thing that um, I'm often talking with students about is um, exposing themselves to something other than what they're being fed. You know, if you're reading the same books everybody else is reading, you're listening to the music that everybody else is listening to, you're watching the shows on TV. I mean, you know, I think television is a, is a deeply creative um, at its best uh, medium. Um, but you need, if you want to have something different to, to solve, you need to be, you, know, you need to search for it. Um, you need to find the things that are um, important to you and not to anyone else, uh, or m maybe not as important. Um, ultimately, you know, when, I, when I'm teaching, one of the things I say to my students a lot is, you know, like, I want you to take the photographs that only you can take. You know, and, and that comes from knowing yourself. If you if you don't take the time to know yourself, if you don't, if you're not using art as a as a way of exploring your own psyche and your own mind, I don't know. I, I, I don't know how else to do it. That that to me seems <laughs> like the the way to go. Len and I are like, amen, amen. <laughs> like, <laughs> we're over here like I'm like totally agreeing, <laughs> nonverbal agreement. <laughs> yeah, because. This is one thing that we, one reason we wanted to make this podcast and mm -hmm. we keep reiterating to all of our listeners is that everyone is creative, yeah. right? Yeah. And there is no one out there that doesn't have that, that isn't creative. And if you think you aren't, you're so wrong. It's so yeah. wrong. <laughs> I think, I think and we want to convince you that you are wrong if you think you aren't creative. <laughs> yes, definitely. I, I think there are a lot of movies and, and, you know, I mean, especially I think popular movies that show these brilliantly creative people who just go into a room and come out and they've got this like world changing, you know, um, endeavor. And there's, there's some really interesting research. I can't remember the, the, there was a, an economist who did a whole study about artists and he, he talked about, you know, there are some artists who peak really early, right? They're, they, they do their most valuable. And he was looking at like paintings specifically. And, um, you know, some people who do the, the, the most valuable creative work in their mid to late twenties, maybe into their thirties. And then things, you know, the value of their, their endeavor goes down and other people who have this trajectory where it slowly, slowly ramps up over the course of their entire life. Um, and I remember talking with somebody about that and saying, well, I, I really can't teach that. If somebody's like so brilliant that they're going to do their best work when they're 22 or 23 years old, like that's not so much about their teachers. That's just like, they've got a phenomenal amount of energy that they can pour into that and, and a brain that's pre-wired to, to do it. Prodigy. I can teach the people. Yeah. Yeah. A prodigy. <laughs> and, I, and I can, but I can teach the people who are on an upward trajectory, you know, it's like, and, and they I think they can both end up in the same place. Um, one's a much more rewarding, you know, trip, I think. Um, if you're gradually getting better and better over the course of your life, I would much prefer if I had to choose, I'd much prefer that than, um, peaking at 27 and then like, <laughs> You're just being disappointed with everything I created for the rest of my life. Did you guys know that the most famous photographs on average are taken in, in the mid-50s by photographers? And this is not artists, but the research across photography is a, uh, their most famous photograph was taken in their mid-50s. So anyway, there's a, there's a number to throw out there. <laughs> I got like eight more years. <laughs> Man, I'm I'm right there. I'm like right on the cusp. Yes. yes. Thanks, Len. I, I, I see them. Look at this. Look at this gorgeousness Super from exciting. Michael. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. We'll we'll post an image on Instagram. So I thought I thought at 33 I was done. I thought isn't that when uh, like <laughs> that's it? You're finished. <laughs> but part of this for me was 
intuitively, when I was younger, I was able to access this beautiful, playful space without too much going on in my head. And then I lost it mm-hmm. by concentrating too hard right. and uh, trying gets, gets too busy, hard. Yeah. And then as I get older, I learn not to care so much again and I relax and I get back to being more playful and Mm -hmm. also working on that problem-solving thing. Uh, I'm I'm quite happily sit under a tree for half an hour working on the same image over and over and over trying to get it and sort it all out and and pull things together. it was interesting, Brie, when you were talking about, you know, see one, do one, teach one, that, that what part of it for me that I thought was interesting, I guess, you know, I, I came back to is, so the the university where I teach, I, most of the students that I work with tend to be, you know, probably kids who are in the gifted classes when they were, you know, going through school. They're, they're, the, they're the brighter kids. Um, and one of the things that I, for me that I think is really interesting about teaching that group is that can't solve artistic problems by thinking about them. Like you have to Ooh. do, you have to do things. And, and that, that for me is, is a really fun thing when I'm working with these students because they were, you know, they're smart. Um, and I think smart is good. You know, I'm not, I'm not anti-smart. I think that um, ultimately, like the foundations of art and design class that I teach is a materials class, if, if anything. You know, they have to paint a color wheel. They have to build a mask. They have to, you know, prototype and do all these things. The thing that I tell them over and over again is you can't, imagine what the problems you're going to run into you know it's like working with clay or wood you know i have a friend who's a a sculptor and he works you know it's all it's all wood and um i worked in a shop one time when i was in grad school i was building this mirror and um i had a straight piece of wood and i ripped it on the table saw and it wasn't straight anymore and i was like what in the world (laughs) like how do you do this like it was straight and now like he's like yeah you broke the fibers on the wood and now it's 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 bent. I was like, how do you do any of this? Like, this is insane. Um, and it's a difference between working with an engineered surface like plywood and working with natural wood that has its own sort of organic character. And I think that that's one of the things for some people is that getting messy and getting in there and fighting with the materials, like being in the darkroom and, you know, dealing with, you know, streaks in your negatives and, you know, like all that stuff that, that we got with analog. It's really, really helpful. You know, nothing will teach you about underexposure like trying to print a thin negative. You know, it's just it's it's f- incredibly frustrating um, to try and take an image that you think should be good and make a decent print when the when you've underexposed the the film. And that's a better that was a better teacher for me than any anybody I ever talked to about you know exposure. So I want to, I want, I, cause I wrote something down. I have my little like Apple little pencil here. Cause I'm like taking from myself even. And I'm just like taking little notes as I listen. This is what I do this on podcast too. And so by the way, I'm doing this on my own podcast too. So there you go. Um, so in this, like in being able to learn creativity, I wrote like step one, just be willing to learn. Right. Mm-hmm. Like like you talked about being open to like, you know, putting the wood, you know, <laughs> I've played with wood too. Mm-hmm. Um, but just being willing and open to go, okay, it's possible that I can up my creativity or become a more creative person or maybe possibly do these creative things that I want to do. And now I have the willingness to put myself out there to learn. And so we're, we're talking about today, like teaching, but also learning, mm-hmm. um, learning also how to be more creative because, you know, in the teaching of it, we learn it 
too. So I think that's step one. What do you guys think? Like, I, I love that you said, be curious. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's, maybe if we did, if we did steps, I'm not saying that I am doing steps, right? but <laughs> if one were so maybe inclined. they're all mixed in all together and like a big, like learn how to be creative soup, you know, but I think also one of the steps is being curious mm-hmm. and having a willingness and Len yeah. said playing. So I'm writing yeah. that down too. <laughs> and uh, the other thing that Michael said there, which I want to remind everybody is this is around this doing if we apply too much intellectual thought we get blocked mm-hmm. and uh, when we do do that the actual answer is to just start is to get your hands in and actually work yeah. on it and do it physically rather than uh, intellectualize about it and the longer you sit there intellectualizing trying to find the 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 artwork or imagine what it's going to be or uh, find the photograph the more blocked you become and the quicker you get in and actually start the making process because it's the doing that teaches you to figure out where to go and takes you on that journey mm-hmm. uh, the, the easier it unfolds so just start is right. a really important trick in that and I, I've been thinking about it uh, as well that when we talk about teaching photography and teaching creativity and learning creativity, that it's not so much that it's about teaching it or learning it. It's, it's about learning the other techniques that uh, other creatives use uh, to do it. If, if we're all creative, we're actually not teaching creativity, are we? We're, we're building confidence, we're, we're teaching techniques, we're teaching approaches. Uh, to do that. No, I, I, I totally agree. And, and, you know, as you were talking, Len, the thing that I keep coming back to for me, that is the biggest impediment, I think, to, to sometimes being creative or, 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 or teaching creativity is, is um, perfectionism. You know, that, that for me is kind of a, uh, it's a syndrome that runs deep, I guess, in my family. Um, and uh, wanting to look good. I mean, perfectionism is basically one, always wanting to look good, um, being focused on your ego um, and um, wanting to look successful at everything that you do. And, and you simply can't get good at anything if you only do what you're good at. You can't get great at anything if, if, if you only do um, what, what's going to make you look good. Um, so that, that for me is the other part. You know, I was talking about working with the students that, that I have at the university. Um, that's part of them getting in there and, and, and um, working with materials. You know, I, I think one of the ways I, I get around it sometimes is giving them something that they don't have a reasonable expectation that they should be good at anyway. I almost want to just go straight to finger painting because it's like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, you're not going to make a masterpiece of finger painting. There's frustration in that too, mm-hmm. isn't there? When we yeah. like go to do something that we think we're not going to be good at and we're like <laughs> trying to be good at it. I think there, there is some frustration, especially if we have like a little bit of like perfectionist tendencies, mm-hmm. you know, happening in our brain, you know? <laughs> so, and and I don't necessarily think that frustration isn't a problem. I think it actually can work a little bit for us mm-hmm. that we just kind of get frustrated and go, okay, I'm, we either get frustrated and put it away or we get right. frustrated and go, you know what? I'm going to keep going until I, until I can like make something interesting, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, and then we keep repeating, repeating until we get better and better and better. 
right? Yeah, but I, I think it really depends on. I mean, I think it depends on how someone's coached. I think it depends on how your, you know, what your what your expectations are. Because I think if you if you try something that you have, there's no way you should be good at it, you can you can play a lot more, you know, than if. There's a, a lot of it's just expectation that, you know, um, so that, that's where I think it's fun to throw things at people that they've just never thought of or never tried at all. Um, that makes it a, a much more playful journey. One of the things that's arising here for me is this idea of a product being, well, perfection is part of that, being something that you're producing that's good. Um, what about just playing for playing with something for the enjoyment of playing mm-hmm. with it? Like, Finger painting is actually a visceral experience of having right. your fingers in the paint and squeezing the paint through your your, your fingers mm-hmm. and pushing it around on the paper, uh, rather than making a painting. And that's a some people uh, have this ability to just enjoy pushing it around, and then when they stop, it's like, oh wow, that's beautiful. And instead, some of us. And I'm guilty of this of perfectionism too, and uh, mm-hmm. having a wrestle with my bloody ego, um, and and wanting to look good. Actually, trying to make something with it, and actually having a, a visualized goal, or um, it, it's got to be something beautiful at the end. And I find as I get older and more experienced, I let go of um, having to take it to somewhere that's resolved and finished, and um, perfect and and beautiful mm-hmm. so i think perfection's a really lovely point that you brought up there i mean when i was in school when i went back to grad school yeah i hadn't drawn anything since i was maybe 13 years old and i, I started school when i was 30 or 31 and trying to draw again at that age was deeply frustrating I, but i started with it because it was such a good teacher for me i mean every time i was drawing something and i got to the point where i was trying not to mess it up it went horribly wrong <laughs> you know um and that was that was i needed to to do that i was really comfortable and competent with a, a camera um and i needed to do something i wasn't good at um and that i think is of all the stuff that i learned you know i still go go back and um do figure drawing sessions um with some of the groups here in town because i i feel like it's it keeps me on my toes and it keeps me um challenge in a way that um, other things don't do that for me. One of the things that's coming up is the use of the hands. And photography in the analog days had a lot more hand use, didn't it? Where we were touching the print, we were mixing chemicals, we were object makers, exactly. And today, often, many people aren't at all. And uh, I'm always encouraging people to make stuff with their hands. And I've just been doing that with my own handmade books and uh, doing it with a group of people. And I've actually been going through your three steps there, Bree, and I mix them up so that uh, the order gets messed up and don't worry about There's whether no they're order, in order man. or not. There's no order. <laughs> There's no order. You can do it however you want. But I, I use guess the willingness teaching. would be number one. <laughs> I use the teaching as a way to um, improve my own skills at the same time. So, But making a book with photographs and artworks with your hands, it connected me with my work in a, in a way that is just so, so different to leaving it on the computer and uh, not being physically in, in touch with it. And uh, it's fascinating that for an art course that it's actually uh, such a strong part of the art course. I was Yesterday I was researching and looking at the Bauhaus and at looking at their original art curriculum 
for design. And so much of it, again, was about craft and there was this argument about art and craft, which we don't need to get into, but uh, so much had to do with your physical hands playing with materials to learn about how they work, which is educating us in how our creative creativity works. So learning creativity uh, is really a furphy, isn't it? What we're doing is actually learning techniques and becoming better with the medium and more comfortable with ourselves and, and unpacking who we are to become uh, more confident. I want to say too, um, and I've been reading, Len, I think we should do a little quickie episode on the artist's way is what I think we should do. Because <laughs> I actually am like starting it today. Okay, by the way, I'll just I'll just pause right here and say, the artist way, uh, Len, Len has said, oh, you haven't read that yet? Oh, you haven't read that yet? Anyway, I'm reading it, a.k.a. I'm listening to it on Audible. And um, she talks. <laughs> Julia hey, Cameron. Yeah. yeah. Studies have shown that listening to a book is the same as reading it, just I, by the way. I have an so, Audible account, I, I and I'm always like out of, uh, out of credit. So, yeah. See? I, I hear there that. you go. Yeah. That's right. So, yes. You can that so you can make stuff with your hands and listen at the same time. It's like mm-hmm. double whammy. Okay, so <laughs> so um, I actually was like, okay, I want to listen to this book. I'm always figuring out, okay, what's next? What's next? And she talks about today. I was listening to this part where she talks about the two things that she recommends, and this goes right along with what we're saying, which is why I'm bringing it up. The first thing she says is you to do these like morning pages where you write, you just write like three pages every day. I'm so loath to do that, but I, I'm going to do it. But I think that the reason, one of the huge reasons, the huge benefits that you get from it is that you release a lot of the judgment about what's going on with your writing and with anything that you're thinking, like you learn how to release judgment with whatever you're creating. And so, and the writing is just a way to do that. And so, so, um, Michael, when you were talking about like releasing your expectations, Mm -hmm. I think this is like, this is a huge part of it is doing something. It doesn't have to be like her morning pages. It doing something repetitively so that you can go, okay, I'm letting, I'm letting all of this go. I'm letting the judgment about all of this go. I'm just going to play. Len, when you were talking about uh, playing, like doing something with your hands, I was actually visualizing myself taking clay and you know how you take a clay and you make it into like a, like a skinny piece. And then you keep rolling it with your hands like this and you make it into a longer and longer and longer snake. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. And then what I would do is then I would start playing with it and like making it into something. So Mm -hmm. it's that, it's that kind of playing where I'm like not, not expecting to do anything, but like, how can I let my mind wander? and how can I release judgment about whatever it is that I'm doing that is that's part of what we're talking about is Mm -hmm. like learning how to do that creativity but we have to there's there's a mental part there's this mental facet which which Len knows I I love I absolutely love is what I do um and so being able to like let that all go so that we can allow ourselves to make the crazy snake and like you know, do whatever, do whatever with it and not care. So, um, and the other thing she talks about is an artist date where we actually do the thing 
we actually go and do the thing like you were talking about again, Michael is like getting our hands in there, do, you know, mm -hmm. same with you, Lynn, getting our hands in there, doing the things is actually putting aside some time where we can let that all go. Yeah. And I think that's how we learn to be even more creative is by crafting these spaces for ourselves to be able to do this. Like you've done this and you've done this at university, people come to you and they say, teach me. Right. And so mm -hmm. this is a space you know, right. We, we all do this. Len, you do this too, where people come to you and say, okay, great. We have the space, this container, you know, teach me how to be creative. Mm. One of those things, uh, Michael is creating a safe space to play in, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Right. It's an interesting thing. I mean, I, I think that having high expectations of your students is important. You know, there's a great book about um, Jim Henson and, and his sort of process. Um, and one of the things that was really kind of fascinating about about him when he was doing his work is he, he was a, it seemed like he was a really wonderful mentor that he was always asking people, you know, is there, is there more? Is, is there more there? Can you, can you, you know, are you happy? Are you satisfied with it? Um, he didn't push people to um, meet an arbitrary goal that he set for them. He just um, gave them the space and the and the resources really to to do it. The other thing that he was really good at was re rewarding people um, for their creative work. You know, one of the things that um, with the Muppets and the it's kind of fascinating um, Sesame Street was um, the artists that create those characters um, get royalties from. Them. So, like the person who developed Big Bird, um, you know, like that. That, that's a lifelong sort of career is is developing that character and, and keeping it fresh and keeping it current. So um, it, it was it was a really interesting thing. But um, yeah, I mean, having a safe space for the students to work is important. The thing that's interesting about teaching university classes is that we have a very um, specific timeline. You know, I'm, I'm with my students for 15 weeks. You know, <laughs> we meet once or twice a week, um, and sometimes I get to work with them again. And when I do, it's really great. But oftentimes, I just get to work with a student one time, um, and so it changes things a little bit. You know, it, it changes the pace of it is is different when you've got a you know fall break and you've got you know Thanksgiving and then you know exams and sort of all that stuff. Um, I do feel sometimes in, in the university classes, like um, we're doing creativity in a very compressed timeline, um, which isn't necessarily a good thing for, you know, like being creative. At the same time, I, I, you can probably both agree that having a deadline sometimes is really like, it's great. Like, I mean, it, it's hard, <laughs> um, but having a show to prepare for or frame or whatever, um, there are a lot of us as artists who would not get anything done if we didn't have some kind of an external deadline, you know, sort of pushing us. So I, I think that it's, uh, it's an interesting thing trying to balance that between giving them the chance to, to mess up. Um, when, when I have students uh, assignments in my classes, one of the things I always tell them is that, you know, they can always resubmit and I'll regrade the assignment if they choose to. Um, because again, it gets back to that perfectionism thing. If they get too worried about their grade, they won't take chances. And that's that's not necessarily a me thing, like Professor O'Neill's mean. Um, it's just that you know they're fixated on getting a particular GPA, and and they don't want to take risks. But you can't make good art if you don't take risks. It's just you know that's not mm. that's not how that thing works. So does a a positive environment uh, play well in your classroom in that sense? Uh, I, I was thinking about what you said very much earlier uh, mm -hmm. in our talk about 
that mm-hmm. some of the the great photographers were terrible yeah. teachers, and then there were some that were absolutely incredible teachers. Yeah. And I've had personally had that experience of mm-hmm. having a terrible drawing teacher at art school to the point that I left drawing and walked out and never went back to that subject um, yeah. and have a bit of a block about it. And the reason I'm in photography is because I had a brilliant photography teacher who mm-hmm. actually had multiple brilliant photography teachers all creating this incredible space for me to learn in that um, gave me confidence and uh, this ability to grow in. It's something that I've actually modelled for the rest of my life when I teach. Mm -hmm. Len, I want to say, because Len has brought this up a few times, I think things worked out just the way they were supposed to work out. Thank you. <laughs> if you had done drawing, we wouldn't be here right now. <laughs> Very true. It's just, it would be somebody else having a podcast, but just not, right? not me. I'd That's find right. someone else to have my creative affair with, just want to say. <laughs> no, no one sees my drawings and asks me to talk about... Uh, to- <laughs> I do don't draw. I, ju- I just don't draw. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> what were you going to say, Michael? I was I was going back on a tangent uh, of my own of my own making. You know, one one of the things that's always funny. I don't know if if it's like this in in Australia, Len, but um, in um, court here in the U.S. in federal court, oftentimes they won't allow photographers in federal courts. Um, state courts they will, but federal courts often they don't. And so that's one of the very few places you, in in popular media where you'll see a sketch artist will come in and do a drawing of the court proceeding. And it's it's such a weird thing that that's okay but a, a camera mm. is not like you know I, I talk with students all the time about th- this is such an artificial like they're both really arbitrary ways of turning the three-dimensional world into two dimensions one but we, we hold them in such different places um and that's part of the reason why i went back to drawing was just because it was um <clears throat> fundamentally so different from photography but ultimately it's a you know it's still a two-dimensional plane you know i i appreciate Mm. so much when people do it well um but um yeah it's you know i mean um cardi brisson talked about the camera just being a really quick way of making a sketch he didn't yeah he he saw no difference he's probably better draftsman than i am but um (laughs) and they're both just so tied up in the uh, values and the system of uh thinking that the person Mm -hmm. is doing them and uh, the audience thinks oh that's what it looked like uh, and the, it's a it's a measurement of truth and and uh, a, a judgment and yet the reality is that we're actually seeing the judgment of the person making the artwork mm-hmm. um, you know which expression do they choose to put on the the person being on trial's face right. there's a judgment in that isn't there um, mm-hmm. in that like do do you portray them as having a guilty face or as a confident face or someone is a narcissist or whatever it is, mm-hmm. uh, is a choice in choosing that. In that, I, I think that's uh, absolutely beautiful to draw, draw parallels from all the arts and uh, that they all intertwine so beautifully. And I, I really love that you brought in engineering and science and medicine into that creativity as a problem-solving thing because it, it is. It's common to so many things that we do, and it's it's common to evolution too. That we mm-hmm. haven't got to where we are as humans without this problem solving. Everything learning is problem solving, isn't it? Yeah, 
I, I remember when I was growing up, I remember one time saying to my dad, uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that, that's not something you want to say to an engineer because <laughs> his, his response is we would still be living in caves if, if that's how everyone felt. Like that's not, that's not a really good strategy for, um, you know, not that living in, maybe there's value in living in caves that, 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 you know, he was overlooking, but it's just one of those things that, um, yeah, I, I think that, um, <clears throat> it's staying, it's staying curious. It's staying, it's adapting continuously. It's using all the information that you have to make a better decision. Like all of that plays into problem solving. Talked about having an interesting problem to solve and being mm -hmm. curious. And what is that saying? If you want to make more interesting, uh, for those who are in the photographic community, <laughs> if you want to make more interesting photographs, be a more interesting person who said that, um, minor white, uh, it sounds like minor white. Right. And so, and I think that's true. And I think that it's not just about photography. It's about mm -hmm. learning all, you know, learning all kinds of things so that, the, so that that can influence our own, um, our own creativity. And because it is problem solving and everyone has this capability, the more things that you learn about the mm -hmm. more you, the more references you have to bring to the problem solving process. Right. right. Um, can, can I back up just a minute? Sure. I want to ask Len because we talked about, uh, we briefly talked a little bit about uh, creating this like safe space. How do you do that Len for your students? And because I think this conversation, like Michael mentioned it in his classroom and um, I'm thinking that there's a translation between being able to create that as a teacher and mentor for your students, and then then our people in our audience being able to do that for our themselves. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious mm -hmm. how you do that for your students, Lynn. Well, part of this is, comes back to our egos. We don't want our egos bruised in the process of um, making art. And for me... Uh, and I have to talk for myself uh, as the easiest way to explain this. When someone comes up and says that that piece of art is shit and it's crap, I, I take a huge ego boost, uh, not boost, a, a dent, and I shrivel and, uh, you know, I go into um, freeze sort of flight mode and run away and hide and all those sort of things. And so creating a safe space is actually removing that possibility um, from that by uh, implementing rules and a, a system and actually teaching each other how to critique and to give feedback and to talk about art without saying it's shit. And um, that's in, you know, in a very Aussie way of saying that, but way of saying, oh, sure about what's happening over here as opposed to saying that's terrible over there uh, i don't like it and uh, it doesn't work for me and also saying it in a way that actually puts the other person down so creating a safe space for me in a classroom is about uh, establishing boundaries and teaching people how to talk about art and to give them a language and a framework um, bringing it back to I statements and uh, uh, the artwork works in this way for me. Uh, and lastly, uh, having a positivist sort of attitude to it. So uh, I tend to teach people by uh, helping them see where they're going right and where to concentrate on 
rather than what they should avoid. And like, oh, you've got it right here. Look, have you, are you starting to notice that this is working in here and you've done it in this one and you've done it in there and then they become more conscious of doing it and then they keep repeating it over and over. So creating a safe space is incredibly important and I have to become the police person in the classroom <laughs> and if someone starts overstepping that mark, I have to pull them up. The mean headmaster. In- yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, by the way, while you were talking, I remember we did a whole episode on feedback and I'm going to link to that in our Mm -hmm. notes um, because it has all of that that Len just talked about and more. So if you're interested in that, I'll I'll put a link to that episode. Um, I also think that able to teach creativity sometimes just does it on its own when you put a bunch of creative people in one space because they all start to feed off of each other. What mm-hmm. have you have you seen this in your classroom, Michael? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, class dynamic ca- you know, counts for so much. It's, it, it it always amazes me. You know, this semester I'm teaching two sections of the exact same class, and they couldn't be more different. Like it, it's it's just sort of an amazing thing. But I, I mean, it really it comes down to that that curiosity. You know, when, when when students are, you don't have to be an extrovert. You don't have to be gregarious to be good in a class situation. You just have to be open and, and curious about what other people are doing. Um, even if you're shy, I think that you can still really rewarding sort of critique um, experiences. You know, every time I, I have a critique in class, I, I try and vary the, the sort of technique um, to a, a new way of sort of approaching things. But um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing to me to see how when you get the right group of people together and they're all really not I think is important to be interesting is to be interested. Um, and, and you just have to, you know, uh, that gets back to that sort of humanistic tendency that, you know, if you want other people to do their best work and that's all, that's what it comes down to in a critique that, you know, you're just trying to help your teammates do their best. Um, so you can give them positive feedback you can give them negative feedback if they're not pulling their weight or, or doing whatever, but it's, a, it's, it should all be moving towards the goal of more good work, you know? Um, more interesting work, more investment. I very much encourage them to experiment and play mm-hmm. and to find themselves and uh, find out what's interesting and exciting for them rather than uh, steering them into a, a set direction, which I think a lot of um, creative teachers make the mistake of. You want to really do yourself out of a job. You want to become redundant in your process of, mm-hmm. of education, don't you? Yeah. And you want them to become the best possible version of themselves and that their artwork is truly making them happy rather than as a performance of, of their ego out to the external mm-hmm. world. I love being in a space personally where there's a lot of interesting creative people. I mean, then you don't have to be interesting. I just have to be interested. I love, I love that you said that, Michael, like that you want to be interested in them. And even just asking the questions, we ask a lot of questions here on this podcast, that space where you can ask a question and then discuss like 
openly with all of these other things, like a willingness to learn that we talked about being curious, kind of playing like, Ooh, I wonder what would happen if, you know, like if, uh, you know, I just kind of started some infrared photography, which I'd love to talk to you about, but, <laughs> sure. um, but you know, if I sat in a room with other people who were also learning infrared and, and saying, Hey, what have you tried that this, or I wonder what would happen. And then someone can share, you know, their ideas and, you know, all of this stuff being in that space where I think seeing what other people are doing and uh, ideas that other people have too, also contributes to me learning Mm -hmm. creatively too. I, I think that's super fascinating actually that, 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 that energy creates that creative energy creates more creative energy. Mm -hmm. For me, you know, I think for, you know, to come back to infrared, uh, you know, that, that for me has been good, (laughs) such a good thing overall. My, my background in in commercial photography was very much about precision and getting things, getting things right that other people couldn't get right. You know, I talk a lot with my, my students about color. And when I was a commercial photographer, primarily, my job was to get color right right whatever whatever that that's a pretty abstract idea but you know um if it was a product make the photograph look like the thing you know and and that's um often harder than than it looks um and infrared is just like it's a mystery every time i pick up the camera i get surprised it's it's one of the things that keeps me bringing you know bringing me back to it over and over again because you know the the dyes and fabrics that we wear were not intended to interact well yeah, they, they, the people who created them never intended for for us to be observing them under invisible energy. Um, you know that that was just not really a thing. The lenses weren't designed to to work with those wavelengths of light for the most part. Um, and so it's been uh, just this really great. Like you know, <clears throat> I get surprised all the time, and I, I love being surprised when I have a camera in my hand. Um, I think that's why I keep coming back to it. I was just in Zion National Park last mm-hmm. month with a friend of mine. His name is Eric Erlenbush. Shout out to him if he's listening to this one. I'll forward it. But um, he only brought along, I only brought along my uh, my infrared and he only brought along his pinhole. And mm-hmm. they're both, both of those mediums, yeah. if you're familiar with them, you know that the infrared is totally, it, it's, it's so experimental anyway, and it's mm-hmm. not like we typically see. And so it really was just fun to play around. And he brought along his pinhole and he's been using it for long enough. He kind of knows now how things yeah. are going to turn out, but there's no viewfinder. So if anyone who's it, like, I was not familiar really with a pinhole camera, there's no viewfinder. So you literally, it would be like finger painting in the dark. Like I kind of know <laughs> I'm yep. doing this. If you can see me, like I kind of know where the paper is or the canvas is. And I'm just going to pick up like, you know, you just blindly pick up whatever colors and then paint. And, um, like you kind of know how things are going to turn mm-hmm. out, but not totally. But never but exactly. That's, yeah. Right. But yeah. I think that, that really makes things super, I think that contributes doing those kinds of things on a regular basis. I'm not saying we want to do those all the time. Like I don't maybe you know, there are sometimes I don't want to play an experiment that I want to be a little bit more non-experimental and a little bit, take my photography a little bit more serious, maybe, but maybe my infrared becomes a serious thing. Right. But, um, being able to just go out and play with it and not have like that expectation and, 
and, uh, and experiment. So, so fun. It was so fun to watch him do his thing too, because it is so fun to witness other people having this kind of fun too. So surround, like surround Mm -hmm. yourself with other people who are also doing this kind of thing because the energy is really awesome. Yeah, pin, pinhole was actually all my thesis work when I was in graduate school was pinhole. I, I spent two years building my own cameras, and I that process is so rewarding. And um, I think one of the things for me that I, 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 you know, I was an architectural photographer before I went back to school, so pinhole was in some ways using the same material. I was using large format negatives, but um, it was the antithesis of antithesis. That control that you have with a with a view camera. Um, and uh, yeah, it was it was absolutely that for me. It was it was just I I knew what was going to be in the frame and I had no idea what it was going to look like. And that was so invigorating and so exciting and so scary. Um, and it, it's I think the reason so many people got into toy photography, you know, Holgas and things like that was just because you were surrendering control. And, and for people who are perfectionists, surrendering control is a really good thing. Here and by the way, while we're talking about this, Michael has like a little like mini grin because it's so fun, right? Like we're picturing ourselves having fun doing these things, (laughs) right? Len is now smiling too. So I think the question is like, when a teacher, how can we um, encourage our students to do this? But also in the learning of it, how can you? do go do something where you just release control and it doesn't, you you don't have to be a photographer to be doing these things. You can be any kind of artist where you release control. And I think when you said scary, some people might be questioning, but I think the scary part is because you have money invested. Yeah. In like Mm -hmm. that's big because how, like how much do those large format negatives cost? It's, it's a, a lot more now than it used to be, but I mean, all, all the work that I did, they were all eight by 10 negatives and they're probably five, it was probably $5 a sheet, which adds up pretty quick if you're making a dozen at a time. Yeah. Right. So there is some risk involved sometimes, mm-hmm. or we yeah. have thoughts about what that's going to cost us. But really, I think in the long run, it was so much more beneficial for you because of the play and experimental factor. So, yeah. um, so let's not let any of that, like those risk factors, like inhibit us from going out and doing the do part. Right. Right. So, so many artists actually choose to work in mediums and in genres that actually have uh, an an element of predictability in it, don't Mm -hmm. they? Infrared is one example. Um, Extraction, cyanotypes, <laughs> you know, how many people are doing cyanotypes under ice and in the sea and in soil? And mm-hmm. it's huge um, as a medium. Uh, and it, it does have this unpredictability about it. You actually look across the broader spectrum of things, so many brilliant artists are always pushing the boundary of this experimental, the mm-hmm. unknown, the randomness. Uh, and it's a controlled randomness, but with a pinhole, you're starting from a framework of a, a of a good composition and mm-hmm. um, an interesting with, with an interest and some sort of understanding, and you know you you're choosing the angle of view and all sorts of things in that process, and uh, choosing the films as well and the processing element of randomness uh, is really really exciting for us. And I think uh, coming back to being in a classroom. 
and, and in a in a group situation that we actually often take bigger risks in that because we we do feel safe and supported in that and encouraged to to do that and I think us as teachers actually actively try to set that up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think the students have to see you play. That it's one of the things that, again, being in a in a university class makes it a little bit harder because of the tight schedule. You know, having classes that are more open ended, having lectures that are not. You know, I'm always interested in seeing some professors get in there and read their lecture word for word off a page, and that that was never engaging for me. It was never interesting for me. Um, I think the people who do it best are the people who um, generate sort of. Um, but the other part of it, so I have, a, I have a good friend that I teach with um, who's a ceramicist. And one of the things that I think is really fascinating about ceramics is partly that it's a really, it's a group sort of project in a, in a lot of ways. You have to mm, interact with, with other people firing. in order to load the kiln and do all that stuff. But um, the other thing is that like, no matter how good you are, there's a percentage of stuff that's just never going to survive the kiln. Like it's just going to it's just going to explode. <laughs> like where they do wood firing, we have a wood kiln and like, there's just stuff that just never, it's not going to make it out. Um, and they go into it with that set of expectations. Like, yeah, I'm going to make all this stuff. And if I get 75% of it out, that's, that's good. I, that was a good week. Um, photographers aren't willing most of the time to deal with that kind of uncertainty. You know, glass blowers, when they do their work, like half the stuff just snaps and smashes when you break it off the stem. That's just like, that's what glass does. Um, and the people who medium, you have to learn to be okay with that. You have to look at something that you made that was beautiful one minute and go on the next. Um, and um, it, so I, I think teaching you know, creativity in photography, I don't know if photography um, attracts more perfectionists than other mediums or if it's just been my experience, but I think that there's something about the mechanics and the buttons and the, you know, the light meters and all that very sort of um, the way that we wrap in science that it's why I think pinhole is so, so great because it's like, well, I made this with duct tape in a box. Like it's just, you know, like it's an aluminum foil and a, and a thumbtack, you know, uh, my friend, uh, Eric Renner and, and, and Nancy Spencer, they, they made these just absolutely incredible cameras out of like whatever, you know, they, they cast their face in plaster and then made that into a pinhole camera and took pictures of each other. It's like, well, that's, that's amazing. Like where'd you even come, you know, um, they gave themselves the chance to play because they weren't, I think, tied down to whole parts of it. Mm. Yeah, that's so, so beautiful. That must be what attracts people to photography is like all the technical parts. And then we think somehow because like when, when I put a glass of water, when I put like a pot of water on the stove and turn it to high, I expect it's going to boil, right? Mm -hmm. There's no like guesswork in that. And somehow we think when we pick up the camera and press the button that, that magically it's going to all turn out. I'm not saying that all of us think that, but like maybe at the beginning, I kind of thought that too. That's what we were sold. I mean, it's it's one of the things that makes photography so different from other medium. And I, I I joke about this a lot that you know sometimes you you know if you go into a gallery and see an amazing painting, most people's minds are like, wow, that must have taken so long to learn how to do that. That's just absolutely incredible. I can't imagine being there. And people sometimes look at a really great photograph and they say, I need to get a better lens. Like I need to take a trip to Patagonia. Like it, it, there's, we've been sold cameras f- by companies for decades and decades and you know generations, where they 
they've told us, like, you can do it too. I mean, we're all in the you can do it too business on some level. I teach photography. So, like, you know, I'm in the business of, of showing people how to do that. But something about the object, the, the photographic object, that, that's fundamentally different because it's always been tied in with that science, that technique, that, that set of expectations. I, I, I think it's really funny. You, I think you mentioned earlier, Bria, a photographer who was a, was, was a physician or a, a doctor. I've always been interested in how many like doctors are into photography. Like I, I've joked that we wouldn't be able to afford Leicas <laughs> if it wasn't for, you know, doctors buying them new and then selling them and we could, artists can pick them up, you right. know, um, at the, at the camera store after, after they've depreciated. But it's kind of one of those things that I, I think it's real. There's, there's a kind of personality that's drawn to this medium. That's a little different than, than other things, um, for good or for bad. I think it can attract all kinds of different people. Mm -hmm. And it really is so interesting. The people that I've met that really enjoy this medium, but in all mediums, I'm like, you do that? Oh, that's super interesting. Tell me about that. You know, yeah. so, the stuff that doesn't fit in the, into a nice, neat boxes, you know, the, the stuff that I always love talking about. But my wife's yes. a metalsmith. So going to like her metalsmith conferences, it's a totally different vibe at the metalsmithing conference than at the photography conference. Like it's a, <laughs> it's, it's a, they're all really great, cool people, but it, it's a different, like, I don't know. There's something, there's something, there's a different angle on it, I think. And why do I feel like when now we had to need to have a separate conversation about that? <laughs> well, that, that could, I mean, I'm getting back to my psychology, but I've always been interested in like who's drawn to woodworking versus weaving versus glass blowing versus filmmaking. I used to teach at a school where we had a photography program and a filmmaking program. And one of the things that, um, thing is that most of the filmmakers were extroverted. Most of the photographers were introverted, not a hundred percent. But um, if you you could tell if you were at a photo party or if you were at a film party, for sure. <laughs> I'm going to take note of that from now on and see uh, how that fits. I'm an extrovert, and it's always a photo party over here. <laughs> there you go. Uh, I mean, the, the filmmaking is ultimately a a group endeavor. Like you can't make a movie by yourself. Um, and so I think the people who are drawn to that kind of storytelling, that that sort of narrative process, are people who you know, feed off of one another. That, that's what an extrovert is, is that they gain energy from interaction with others. Um, and most of the photographers that I worked with tended to be, you know, like they wanted to control the process from beginning to end, especially when we were in an analog world, you know, wanting to roll your own 35 millimeter cassettes, shoot your film by yourself, develop your film, make your prints in the darkroom. A lot of those are very um, solo endeavors. So I, I think it to it a different kind of um, person, a mm. little bit. Much so. Creativity is a problem-solving process, and we are searching for problems or for answers. Of course we want the, the quick answer as well, don't we? <laughs> and isn't that sort of, maybe that's human nature. I'm not a psychologist and you could right. fill me in on this idea, <laughs> but um, if we want the quick answer, we do want to know what the answer is going to be, and that can become a trap when it comes to creativity because yeah. we want to get outside the quick answer and we want to get beyond those walls to find out what else is possible and what happens when you do this and do that. Mm -hmm. And the beginnings of learning anything, we do need to learn the, the quick answers and to, to sort that out and uh, uh, learn how it works before we can actually go beyond that process. And I think a lot of people um, maybe get stuck in that and then that might even continue on through their, their whole creative life 
uh, that it becomes very predictable and uh, comfortable. Whereas, yeah, uh, for me, uh, I'm a you know my, one of my joys as a kid was rock climbing and you know scaring myself to death. Um, uh, is actually uh, there's enjoyment about in taking risks and being mm-hmm. on the edge and on the unknown and trying to explore unknown ground. And I, I get off on it and I really pursue that. And encouraging that in a group, it seems that risk-taking seems to be easier in a group mm-hmm. for some reason. I come back again and again to, to like, oftentimes the best thing about something is the worst thing about it as well. And I was just thinking as you were talking, it's the immediacy of photography. Right. It's that, especially with digital, you know, it's like you get the result right away. You know what the photograph looks like right away. Um, and I think that that maybe is part of the reason we've seen so many emerging photographers going back to analog processes, you know, talking about cyanotype and all the, you know, something that slows the process down pinhole, right? Um, you can't see that image right away. You got to go into the dark room and, and, you know, um, develop that negative and, and, and sort of figure, <laughs> figure it out. I think that there is, um, there's a value in how quick it is, and there's a value in seeing that immediacy, mm. that gratification that you get from that in- image coming coming right away. So awesome. I've really loved this conversation. I feel like this is a really great way to end. <laughs> 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 Michael, we have loved chatting with you. I did too. Um, yeah. Thanks for being our first guest. We had a couple of guests fall through, but, um, but we're so excited to chat with you today. And, um, I, I just really like, I, I've had a smile on my face, like the whole time Len has to, we really do love having these kind of conversations and, um, we're so glad that you were here with us today. So, yeah, I was really happy to be asked and it was uh, happy to be a part of it. So thank, thanks. Thanks again. A, a wonderful thing to do is to um, find people that have beautiful creative passion and uh, have different ideas than ourselves that uh, we end up with this uh, ec- expanding of ideas mm-hmm. and going off in new directions and uh, looking forward to more conversations and I'm going to have definitely have more with you, Michael, and uh, I can't wait to have my next one with Bree as always. And uh, it has, it's been such a lovely pleasure. So thank you very much. Thank you. All right. Well, I guess we're done for today. So we will see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us in our creative affair. If you love the passion we bring to this creative content, please support the podcast by sharing with a friend, subscribing, and leaving us a review. To find out more about Bree's work, including her gorgeous photography and mentoring in her Creative Confidence Group Coaching Program, please visit her at creativemindscoach.com. If you'd like to learn more about creative photography, you can find me at lenmetcalf.com, where you can find links to my photography school, my videos, and numerous publications. I would so love you to sign up for my newsletter. Well, until next time, we hope you enjoy your creative life. And it's time to say goodbye for now.